Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Great Wind of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 11, 2015. When I was in seminary 35 years ago, I took two years of Greek and one year of Hebrew for my Master's of Divinity degree, the standard degree for ordination. Hebrew was especially hard, with its exotic alphabet and text that read from right to left. I've forgotten my Hebrew, but there's a phrase from the second verse in the Bible that I learned way back then that I couldn't forget if I tried. In Genesis 1-2, we read that the primordial soup of pre-creation was, in the Hebrew, tohu wa bohu. That was fun to say out loud as a student. It rhymed, it was phonetically simple, and it was one of the few things that I could pronounce without mangling the language. It also made you feel like you enjoyed some mystical knowledge about creation. Tohu wa bohu. The stuff of creation was a formless <clears throat> or, <clears throat> or unformed waste, a shapeless, futile, and empty void. Darkness and desolation covered the watery deep. Things were chaotic. But then we read there was a great wind, a ruach. Elohim, that blew over the waters. The simplest way to read this is as a strong and stormy wind, but interpreters have never been able to resist the translation that the Ruach Elohim is the very wind, breath, or spirit of the living God. Like a tender mother, God's spirit hovers broods or flutters over the watery chaos. The word rakaf is used only two other times in the Hebrew Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32.11, for example, God says that when he found his people in a howling wasteland, he shielded or guarded them like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. The Gospel and the Epistle for this week remind us that the Spirit of God broods and blows over our own little lives, just like He does over all creation and history. As with the original creation of the whole cosmos, so now with the recreation of my own life. In Mark chapter 1, at the baptism of Jesus, Mark writes that the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then in Acts 19, when Paul baptized 12 clueless people in Ephesus, Luke writes that the Holy Spirit came on them. The Spirit of God forms the formless. He breathes spirit into matter. He creates purpose, order, and meaning out of the chaos. He fills the empty void with beauty, 
and goodness. He turns darkness into light, night into day, the evening into a new morning. God calls those things that don't exist into existence. That's what the Spirit did in creation, and that's what he does in my redemption. Hildegard of Bingen, who lived from 1098 to 1179, was one of the most spirit-inspired mothers of the church. In an age when life expectancy was about 40, she lived a remarkably long and incredibly productive life. The Benedictine abbess founded two convents, conducted four preaching tours, wrote at least 400 letters, wrote music in a morality play, supervised illuminated manuscripts, cared for her fellow sisters, and wrote three major theological treatises based upon her famous visions. All of this despite her pronounced feelings of self-doubt, the lack of formal schooling, chronic illnesses that probably included depression and migraine headaches, and the subservient roles assigned to women by a male-dominated church and culture. <clears throat> Hildegard of Bingen was born the youngest of ten children to an aristocratic family that lived near Mainz. She started having what she later concluded were divine visions as early as age three. When she was eight, her parents dedicated her to the religious life, and at the age of 14, she entered an abbey. Until her death, almost 70 years later, she devoted herself to the life of a Benedictine nun. After keeping her visions to herself for decades, when she was 42, Hildegard says that God told her to write what she had seen and heard. And now I quote Hildegard. God said to me, so now you must give others an intelligible account of what you see with your inner eye and what you hear with your inner ear. Your testimony will help them. As a result, others will learn how to know their creator. They will no longer refuse to adore God. Here is Hildegard of Bingen on the brooding, hovering, and fluttering spirit of God. It's one of her many poems or prayers. O comforting fire of spirit, life, within the very life of all creation, holy you are in giving life to all. Holy you are in anointing those who are not whole. Holy you are in cleansing a festering wound. O sacred breath, O fire of love, O sweetest taste in my breast, which fills my heart with a fine aroma of virtues. O most pure fountain, through whom it is known that God has united strangers and inquired after the lost. <coughs> o 
breastplate of life and hope of uniting all members as one. O sword belt of honor, enfold those who offer blessing. Care for those who are imprisoned by the enemy and dissolve the bonds of those whom divinity wishes to save. O mightiest path which penetrates all, from the height to every earthly abyss, you compose all, you unite all. Through you clouds stream, ether flies, stones gain moisture, waters become streams, and the earth exudes life. You always draw out knowledge, bringing joy through wisdom's inspiration. Therefore, praise be to you, who are the sound of praise and the greatest prize of life, who are hope and richest honor, bequeathing the reward of light. Father George Montague reminds us that God's Spirit broods over the mess and chaos of our own lives. He writes, There is no light, and we are floating like a cork lost at sea. We try to fight it, to no avail. We try to flee, but there is no exit. So what do we do? We fall on our knees and ask the Holy Spirit to hover over our mess to embrace it lovingly, and to prepare it for the light of God's word. If any of our chaotic depths surface, we then turn them over to the Lord. The first few verses from Genesis remind us that every life in the entire cosmos comes from God and not from nothing. They affirm that despite the chaos and darkness around us, creation is good and beautiful. And that's because the Spirit of God broods and hovers over all of us like a tender mother. For books this week, I review a new novel by Ian McEwan. It's called The Children Act. New York, Doubleday, 2014, 221 pages. Fiona May, the protagonist narrator in Ian McEwan's new novel, knows a thing or two about families in distress. Across the decade, she's earned praise as a high court judge in the family division of Britain's legal system. She's a fair-minded judge who upholds the 1989 Children Act, which says that the child's welfare shall be the court's paramount consideration. But in this story, that's easier said than done, especially when Fiona's personal and professional lives collide. After 35 years of marriage, and regrets about never having had a child. Her husband Jack asked permission to leave, to have one big passionate affair, as he puts it, with a 28-year-old, and still stay married to Fiona. 
she had become the sort of person who appeared before her bench every day. McEwen writes, A professional life spent above the affray, advising, then judging, loftily commenting in private on the viciousness and absurdity of divorcing couples. And now she was down there with the rest, swimming with the desolate tide. Fiona is lost in a welter of emotions, self-pity, self-blame, anger, humiliation, emptiness, and abandonment. She tries to go about her business as usual. McEwen writes, her hope was that she didn't look too much like a woman in crisis. The personal and the professional collide again in a different way. In one of her cases, a young man with leukemia wants to reject a blood transfusion because of his religious beliefs. It's the only thing that will save his life. The legal, the medical, and the moral now mash up. Should the court compel the young man to have treatment? Fiona then does something close to breaching professional ethics and common sense. She visits the young man in the hospital. That visit has dramatic consequences for everyone that no one could have foreseen. For herself, Jack, the young man, and his family. Had she really upheld the 1989 Children Act, both personally and professionally? You'll have to read Ian McEwen for yourself and make your own decision. Ian McEwen, The Children Act, a novel. For movies this week, I review a film called Dear White People, 2014. This comedy about race takes place at the fictional Winchester University, where Samantha White, a biracial student, is elected head of her black residence hall. Sam hosts an edgy campus talk show called Dear White People, where she deconstructs what it means to be black to white people. She also wants to prevent the university from diversifying her all-black dorm. In describing Samantha, one student said it was like Oprah and Spike Lee had a pissed-off baby. Winchester University also features an annual Halloween party organized at the campus humor newspaper called Pastiche, at which students are encouraged to, quote, unleash your inner Negro, end quote. I didn't find this movie offensive. Everyone from all sides gives and takes the verbal abuse. I just thought it was a feeble attempt to critique stereotypes with nonstop repartee about hair texture, skin color, music genres, food, and so on. It raises a question. Is superficial satire a good way to tackle a complicated social issue like race? In the end, not in this film. Once again from 2014, Dear White People. 
And as we begin a new year in the month of January, for poetry we've posted a poem by the British poet Christina Rossetti. Christina Rossetti lived from 1830 to 1894. The title of this poem is called In the Bleak Midwinter. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak winter, long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus the Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breastful of milk and a mangerful of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim throng the air. But his mother only, in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. And what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I give him my heart. In the Bleak Midwinter, Christina Rossetti. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 11, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.